Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a Lit Yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through safer and smarter movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Today is Friday with Friends and I have a special friend, Bill Rogers. Bill is one of my yoga students, but boy, does he have um, quite a resume. He is a professor of public policy at Rutgers University. He was the chief economist for U.S. Labor Department for President Clinton. He's also a coach for young men's soccer team and a dad of two boys and a girl. Welcome, Bill. Hey, Laura, how are you? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just for everybody who's listening, Bill, you've been taking my classes, I don't know, four years now? Five years? Four years. Yeah, four years now. Yep, I uh, turned 50 and became a single dad of three teenagers and four cats. And uh, (laughs) it was just that alone I needed uh, an outreach. But also the big thing was... uh, I had been a lifelong runner, played Division One soccer, and uh, the wear and tear of and I started doing a lot of road running. The wear and tear started pounding. It just became really uncomfortable. And uh, a good friend uh, told me about uh, class that you were having, and we came, and the rest is history. And uh, and I love your notion of how a lot of other studios focus on the pose, while you focus on the transitions. And that's why it was just so wonderful coming to a place where it's all about, because I was transitioning and that's where you say we get hurt, right? The transition of getting out of the car, the transition of getting in and out of the shower, the transition of getting out of a marriage, right? So it's, uh, it's been a wonderful four years. I never thought I'd be doing uh, forearm balances and handstands at age 55, now we're 56. <laughs> I know, I know. We should just have a whole highlight of a, a, a bill reel, but yeah, it's been, it's been wonderful to witness it and and see your focus and determination. And I love how you said the thing about transitions because that is something that is often overlooked and tra- how important transitions are. And I think that is what makes this particular method so unique is that we're looking at everything. And then those transitions is really how you hold your shit together, I often say, really how you hold it together. Um, so we are in a transition. A huge, that's a great segue. We're in a huge transition now, um, culturally, politically, I mean, worldwide, um, we're talking now at the peak of real racial, t- I don't want to say racial tension, the recognition of years, decades, um, centuries of racial um, disparity, inequity, and it's all come to a surface in the last 
few months. I mean, it's really been around longer than that, but it's peaked in a way that is just um, obviously incredibly apparent. Yeah, there. Yeah, yeah and, and there are, I would say, three, and probably many more, but uh, for me that I've noted three real causal stories. One is, and I don't mean to be partisan because I'm sure you have listeners who are Republican and independents and Democrats, but I think there is a growing consensus that, you know, we have a president who has offended a variety of people, uh, women, immigrants, minorities, people with disabilities, especially if they don't agree with, if they, if they challenge his authority or they don't, or they, or they uh, question his privilege, right? And so there, there's a growing swath of people who feel that way. And then also from an economic standpoint, a lot of the work I've been doing has been showing, I've been finding that, um, that a larger number of, of, uh, of non-Blacks right, are experiencing the economic anxieties of a job loss, of not being able to recover from a natural disaster as quickly, um, or uh, having an employer who's, uh, who's uh, hiding their wages, uh, or, or they call it wage theft, but just, the, the, but just facing or experiencing a lot of the anxieties that Blacks have in the workplace and in society and culture, uh, not just this past few years, but over the over decades. And uh, and then the, and then third is right. This pandemic has really shown that everybody's vulnerable. Right? That everybody, vulnerable. yes, blacks and Latinos and folks who are at the lower part of the income scale, right? Uh, they are disproportionately being affected. But 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 everybody is being impacted by the pandemic. Whether it's be being you have a, a loved one who you can't see and say your say your goodbyes to who caught caught the infection. And but but the but the bottom line is there's just that. That as one of my good colleagues, good friends, as uh, blacks who have traditionally been the canary in the coal mine, but uh, again because of globalization and, and uh, technology, uh, because of people feeling that they've been that they've been bullied by, by uh, political correctness, right? There's been this growing desire, and John Edwards started to talk about two Americas, but he got shot down. Uh, John Kerry, when he was running for president, talking about two Americas, talking about growing income inequality. So if you connect the dots and you're aware and you're aware to this, uh, you, we end, you'll end up seeing that, oh my gosh, this, and then the flashpoint around Mr. Floyd being killed. Right? This, this is not rocket science. Right. The fuse was already lit. It was just, like you said, it wasn't, it wasn't exploding in front of people in the same way that obviously in the Black community, people, you know, they're kind of like, wow, you're finally waking up to this. But yeah, do you think it was the right. convergence of all these things that really lit it up? Exactly, exactly. Uh, and and I, that's how I understand at one level the diversity of the protesters. I think one is to prop up and support and elevate uh, and celebrate uh, Floyd's life and, his, and, tell, and help and assist and support his family. But, the, but it's also because many uh, of, of young whites in, in the in the uh, in, in the protesting peaceful protesting, right? They they well they 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 have, their parents have experienced economic hardship, more economic hardship than the Great Recession, but we have this pandemic. But also, right, since the nineteen eighties, since the since the early nineteen eighties, income inequality uh, has grown. Or another way of phrasing or talking about it is economic security. Right, that we've had the erosion of unions, which typically which helped to raise wages. Help to provide, help people negotiate good contracts. Help to maintain safe and safe and fair workplaces. But we also had at the same time a real big pullback in the role that government 
uh, government do- does to provide safe and work- safe and fair workplaces. When I worked with President Clinton, that was one of the things that we felt our job was to do was to kind of do is to bring back to help make uh, labor share what we call it the share of compensation uh, as a uh, relative to gross gross domestic product to get that to shift back more to workers. Because do you think that from what you're saying is that Blacks by far were being disadvantaged by that? Well, Blacks, but but be, but because those examples, this decline in unions, the inability for state, for uh, the federal government to keep on raising the minimum wage, uh, failure to ex- continue to expand earned income tax credit, slow down investments in education, then in, in shifting out of manufacturing, high wage manufacturing jobs in the Midwest, right? These, all of these economic forces contributed to, to, to growing income inequality that regardless of your race, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your gender, if you were a lower to moderate wage worker, you saw these things creating more economic insecurity for you. Then you also saw an erosion in what we call social safety nets or parachutes. So Unemployment insurance is a perfect example of that. Medicare, Medicaid, these are also examples of a, of a social safety net to where the notion is they were created, some of them were created uh, during, as a response to the Great Depression, but it's that if you've been faced the, any of the vicissitudes of life, right, the things that are beyond your control, you have no, there's no fault, you have no fault in why it happened to you. We felt that if enough, when you have those things happen, we need to have safe nets that help to protect uh, people. Uh, and, and so as the economy became more open, uh, we also pulled back that rug. And so we shifted more risk onto, other, onto families as opposed to the community or the, or the, or the, or the, na- the nation. That had a hard, that's had a harder, big, greater or adverse impact on Blacks. Um, but it also, as I said earlier, it's... It, that those effects have shifted out to the suburbs. They've moved up the income scale to where the economic insecurity has become a major issue for all Americans. And I guess one way to maybe think about this for people, to, our listeners, the United, in New Jersey, we, uh, the United Way of Northern New Jersey created this really cool concept called ALICE, where ALICE stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained and Employed. And basically, it's a concept of living wages. And we've estimated uh, that about 35 to 40% of New Jersey households live at or below Alice. So, so, the, so, this, so they're not in poverty. These are people who are above poverty. Because right? what we're finding is you need to be between forty dollars and $75,000 a year if you have a family of four, two kids and, and two parents, two adults, to make ends meet. So you're not going to Disneyland right, with these kind of budgets. So... So, so that's what I was trying to just try to describe, help people understand, right? Is that this incre- increased insecurity has, it's no longer just a black thing mm-hmm. or Latino thing, right? It's, it is, it's an American thing. Do you think there's like a sense of comradeship in that since it's not just the, a, a racial divide or is there, does that make people more angry? What if, is there more <laughs> of a comradeship? Yeah, that's, like a, great, that's a great question. Right now, right now, when you look at the protesters, um, and you'd listen to them, you talk to them. I think there's a, there is a, there is, there's a feeling of collaboration. But if you look back at previous election cycles, you have situations where one party will throw out or try to find, throw out a uh, social wedge issue that, uh, such as uh, marital equality, marriage equality, 
such as issues around immigrants for coming and taking all of our jobs or they're coming into our communities and lowering the quality of school, the school experience for kids. And so by inserting these social issues, right, they've acted to peel away, right, this, this potential coalition, right, of, of, of Americans. And, and, and I think that's something that people have to watch over the next few months um, as we move towards the November election is, the, is will there be a social wedge issue that, that will be thrown in? And, and another way to think about, example, to think about this, when I was at the Labor Department, we were doing work on, on the minimum wage, raising the federal minimum wage. We made these amazing maps that showed who would benefit in the United States by state if you raise the minimum wage, just a modest amount. And then we layered onto that who the member of Congress was. And what you found was the biggest beneficiaries would be in these southern states going out to Texas. But their members of Congress were always against, against this. And they never paid the price for being against something because they were able to inject some kind of social wedge issue that got these people to vote, gets, gets these people to vote against their economic self-interest. So that's something, something, something for us to watch. It's true. I mean, I feel like politicians are almost, they really are puppeteers. You know, it's like, oh, don't want you to look at that. So let's bring attention over here. And, you know, instead of like saying like, we've got real hard stuff to look at and we're going to address it and not um, bypass it by turning the attention to something else, which is more inflammatory or more whatever. Um, Okay. So I have a question. What is it like to work in the White House? I mean, like, <laughs> come on, you're like in the very, you're in the, le- you know, like 0.005% of the, you know, country. What is that like? You don't, you don't have to tell us anything major, but yeah. just, yeah. Yeah, I'm in my office and I spent most of my time down by the Capitol with, where the Department of Labor is on Constitution Avenue. But I did have a number of meetings uh, you know, periodically at the White House. And one thing that, I guess people always have to remind themselves. It was funny because people would say, yeah, I'm going over to the meet. I'm going to a meeting at the White House. And you'd learn, it, learn that they weren't really at the White House. They were going to the old executive office building, which is next door, but it's a part of the White House complex. <laughs> so, um, so we have to be careful. When someone says, I'm at the White House, are now, are you at OELSB or are you really in, no, are you really in the West Wing? Very <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, uh Go into the West Wing? Uh, one of the most, one of the chilling experiences, and it's real, and it's rel- relevant to to what we're talking about or what we're experiencing now is um, in 2000. When that's when I when I worked for the labor secretary, we had uh, just celebrated at that time the best economy, lowest unemployment rates, over 21 million jobs created, and but we but we were still concerned that there were communities that were being left behind that weren't benefiting from the boom, and so. My secretary came up with this, this idea of what she called her youth opportunity movement, youth opportunity grants. And we ended up unveiling them on a Friday afternoon, Friday early evening at the White House where President Clinton gave, uh, gave an initial talk about 20 minutes or so. And then he did his radio address to talk about these grants. And what he talked about was, as I said, it's so really prophetic, but it's all, it just it relates to what we're... And he gives us some advice for what's going on now with us. And that is, he recounted back to 1969 when he was a young, young man. And he was called about, he talked about how 
we had done such great work to implement and expand various great society programs and combine that with that, with, with at that time, the best economic expansion. And that's where he, but then he cautions, he says, or said that that prosperity, creating that prosperity took a lot of work and that you can't take for granted how hard it is to create prosperity because that summer, it's like the beginning of this summer, snap of a finger, you had cities burning, right? There was rioting, protesting. And, and so you know, that's something that has, has always carried with me, right? Is, is, is another way of come on gratitude right? that, mm-hmm. that we have to really understand and, and in this case, take serious, really take serious, really do the gut check. Uh, internal sort of uh, evaluations of ourselves, not just not just whites. Everybody has to be doing this uh, at this stage right now because, and and you saw what happened. We've seen what happened: shutting the economy in two months. We now have unemployment rates that are way exceed the uh, the great great recession, uh, and it only took two months as opposed to the great recession in two thousand seven two thousand nine. Took sixteen to twenty months to see those those dramatic increases. So that was, that was, that was a very impactful um, uh, time being over there. But, uh, but the, you know, you, st- you got to submit your, you know, all your birth dates and I mean, all sorts of stuff in the securities. That, that was kind of com- comical because it's very important to have that. But, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's great to have that, have, have that opportunity to, to be in that space. I believe that. I believe that it's so, um, yeah, that's a pinnacle. That's a real pinnacle to reach. And, you know, so looking back, you, you know, growing up and, and getting to that place, what would you say that you, did you feel any of the racial inequality in terms of opportunity or in terms of schooling or any personal experiences or personal things like these, um, maybe statements that were made that really encoded in you this, like, I'm going to have to, you know, no matter what happens, I'm going to do blah, 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 you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, for whatever reason, the grace of God, I'm, I've been truly blessed. Knock on wood because it still could happen, but I've never had really any encounter like with the police that, uh, that, that a lot of my uh, friends have had. You know, my my son just recounted an uh, experience he had at his college when he was out. It was it's been he circulated it on 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 social media and it's gotten a lot of a lot of praise and it took him a lot of courage to tell that story. You know, my biggest issues around race <laughs> were I grew up in a town similar to Princeton, but and and there were a handful of blacks. I mean, the, the joke we had in our family was. Uh, you know, was when the census numbers would come out and they would break it out by race. We were just large enough to where you could see us in, the, in these census numbers of uh, our, our family and a few of the other black families. But, uh, you know, that, that town, I, I was the captain of the soccer team, track team. We won a state title in soccer, went to the state meet. I also debated and, and, and that's, the, that's where I ended up having this one experience where you know, it was a dating experience where the, this friend, she uh, and I wanted to date, and her mom was sort of the PTA maven, and uh, she got on calls, and she's trying to find dirt on me to see, you know, 
uh, to, to, to be able to justify why, why she didn't, why justify why she didn't want her, my friend to us to date. And it was kind of comical because she, she, she came back. She's like, I couldn't find anything. <laughs> he does this. He does that. He does this. Yeah. He does that. <laughs> but here's the thing, though. She still came back and said, at the end of the day, Bill, at the end of the day, I don't want to say her name. Right. At the end of the day, he's, he's, he's black. And right. therefore, yeah, I don't want you to. And you know, being you know, high school, juniors, seniors, we figured it out. I mean, <laughs> we figured out how to see each other. Uh, you know, I had another experience like that, but, uh, you know, and then the other piece too is I know a lot of my friends growing up, they had the, the lecture about how you handle yourself. And, uh, and my father and I were talking about that about a year or two ago. And he said, you know, we never gave you the lecture. We just really taught you how to, um, taught, taught you just one, don't get yourself in positions, and, and this isn't to say, don't get yourself in positions that, that can make you vulnerable. Um, and, and I don't want people to interpret that as saying, that's, that's why this is all happening. I mean, there is, there is an, there's a level of antagonism. I remember I served on a, my local school board in Williamsburg, Virginia, and we used to, and we would have the, we, would, we had, one of the unfortunate things we had to do was doing the work of uh, disciplinary hearings. And there was a pronounced racial difference. Black kids who came in front of us were coming in front of us because they got surly. They were viewed as being surly with, 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 their, with the teacher, with the administration, mm-hmm. while white kids on average were coming to us because of there were issues around drugs and, and alcohol, underage drinking. That was not fully, but, but, that, but there was definitely a correlation and I remember we started to talk with some of the teacher, what the administrators and saying, can we, can we do some work? Can you all do some work around almost like with the police conversation, right? Because <laughs> we, because you could see and you listen to some of these kids and their parents who went, who went to Williamsburg segregated schools. So they also were coming in, not trusting, the con- trusting the conversation and trusting the institution of the school. But could you all do some sensitivity work or, 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 or de-escalating tactics or techniques or training uh, because it was, it, you know, it, because it was, it was very, very apparent that, that that's where a lot of that, has, that got, a, got escalated. And, and it's in, in whether you want to call it the micro, microaggressions, which is yeah. the new word now, uh, or just very inflammatory. It, it, it just, you saw that it just escalated. And, and for many, and for many, for many times, no, no, no reason for it to. Right. And I think, you know, now I'm hoping it seems like this is an opportunity because it's so, you know, because of social media, of course, but it just really, it's, everyone is talking about this. Like you're saying microaggression, all these new, not new terms, but terms that, that are coming to light and teaching people. Like there's a lot of things that we have overlooked or we've just not even taken it as a, as a racist thing that um, has just been so ingrained in our culture. And I do think that gives us all a pause to think, okay, how are we behaving or, or assuming or witnessing anything um, where we could, you know, not, not to like overanalyze everything, but how we, we can be of help, you know, how right. we can, I yeah. talk about being an ally and some of it is like being an ally in this situation is going well beyond what, any kind of return we're going to get. The return we're going to get is the justice that's been needed all along. Mm-hmm. 
But what is your take on it from a, not only from a cultural standpoint, but like, what are like some key things you think that, I, I, I know you don't, you haven't personally experienced it, but what do you think three things maybe that white people can really focus on right now? In order, and to be a good ally, to be, um, to keep oh, it. Well, uh, yeah, well, well, I would, yeah, sure. And I, and I guess I want to expand your, your, the question from whites but also to Blacks mm-hmm. and to Latinos and to Asians and to uh, just to, to really to, to everybody because there are the experiences that are, that are, have become the flashpoints, right? They are, many of us don't or have not had that, had that, ex, had that experience. For example, a lot of times we talk about the black community. Well, because of desegregation and the acquisition of education and and, and affirmative action and uh, improvements in corporate in court in the private sector, right, you now have you now have a situation where the black experience is. The experience of someone who a young guy, young man, young woman who lives in Camden or Newark, but then you also have the experience of young black kids who grew up in Montgomery, mm-hmm. right? Or you have Montgomery, uh, New Jersey, for Montgomery, New Jersey, sure. Or, <laughs> or yeah. you have or 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 young African Americans who grew up in Shaker Heights, Ohio, right? Mm-hmm. And so the the challenge here is that there's no silver bullet. Uh, and maybe that's not the best analogy or just like there's no white community, you know, like right. there's the whole spread of white, you know, like similarly. Yeah. Yes. And so the challenges that a young black college graduate faces are very different than there's an overlap, but they're very different than let's say what a young black who only has completed a high school degree, right? That the kinds of the kinds of things that are going to be stacked against them are very differently. Uh, for example, in the late in the in the nineteen early nineteen eighties, black college graduates were earning on parity with white college graduates. Through that nineteen eighties period, they actually felt have gone to a disadvantage to where they about earn eighteen to twenty percent less than white college graduates, while black college, high school graduates were always sort of earning that. That disadvantage. Um, you also see that the here where the similarities, right? That you'll see a black college graduates have lower unemployment rates, much lower than than black high school graduates, but they still have their unemployment rates are still higher than twice that of of white college graduates. Problem is, how do you solve both, right? That they're that they're they're the criminal justice piece. There's overlap there. Right? That unfortunately. There are black college grads and people with PhDs. Skip Gates, a Harvard professor, he had a, his, his encounter a couple of years ago. Uh, I think there was a Princeton, New Jersey professor, or university professor, African-American woman. She had an encounter a number of years ago. So that's the thing, you know, that, that about being someone in my position and, and, uh, and others who are highly educated and doing well professionally, uh, you, you have these moments that remind you, oh, I'm black, or the society needs right, me exactly. inferior, and so you 
so so that so one of the things that you know, that, that, that that I think people are trying to communicate is that there is a level of you always have your that you're not looking for racism because if you did you'd be paralyzed it's like as a woman you're not looking for examples of how men are being sexist to me right because then we'd be paralyzed um, but but there is a level of you don't we don't realize it but but we do have our antenna on right? we do have our antenna on. So to your question of kind of what can people do, um, I think it comes back to the work that we were doing with Alice at the United Way of Northern New Jersey, where we, we took Alice and we said, here's Alice's housing issues. She doesn't have, uh, what happens if she doesn't have housing? We can clearly tell, tell a story of what happens to Alice, but people have to get to the other next column. What does Alice not having housing mean for me? How does it affect me? Right? How does it make me worse off, right? And and so if people can get shift over from well, just seeing that video of Mr. Floyd being being uh, being being killed to say, well, that's horrible for his family, and get over to the next column. What does that mean for me? Mm-hmm. The inner right? yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Right. Because we as a society, and this is why I wanted I wanted to expand from just what whites can do, right? We as a society have become much more segregated by, by class, by our neighborhoods, and by our schools. And, and that was one of the reasons why we created this Alice concept, where one of my hopes is I want to get people to kind of do an Alice audit. As, and, 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 even, and you could even do it in the context of, 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 of race here, too. Of When you get up in the morning and you go through your day, log your interactions with, with, with Alice or log your interactions with people who are different than you. Right? And and I think people will be surprised. I mean, I, I my one of my good friends said discouraged me from doing it, but I I wanted to do something on about Facebook because Facebook tells you Instagram tells you who your networks are exactly right. And this isn't me. I'm not saying you have to have, be have a black friend or you have to have an Asian friend, but 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 what it's telling us is about how we get siloed. And then how it leads to us not being cognizant or being having empathy for other people who are different than us who are and, and that's why I was saying earlier why I think we, some of the protesting has become more peaceful protesting has become much more uh, has become much more diverse. It's because at least from an economic dimension, there are more and more people non-blacks who are experiencing the same kinds of uh, economic uh, trauma, economic uh, anxiety, right? economic insecurities that many blacks have for the longest period of time. Yeah, it's almost like that. It's almost like developing economic empathy mm-hmm. can spill over into other because, right. like, what you're really talking about is that 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 caring. And, and I yes. love, I've heard that, but the way you explained it um, is probably the best I've heard. It's like really taking inventory of like your daily encounters and probably having to be more purposeful about having, um, enc- you know, engagement with people that don't look like you might not actually think the same as you, you know, like those are some of the hard things that it's really easy to go about your day. And, and again, just kind of walk the path. That's very similar to you. That's right. And then, and one of the things I've loved about yoga and the, and your practice is, it has gotten me out of my comfort zone, mm-hmm. right? Which is what you're talking about here is that I think for 
us to really have begin to have a long lasting impact here, it's it's we have to get out of our comfort zone. Um, we have to realize that this is a, this is not a sprint, and that's what I've been saying to some of my 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 kids' uh, friends, and young adults, that this is not a sprint. It's great that you're all lathered up and you want to protest, but we need you to be there in November. We need you to be there lobbying for um, who's going to take Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, seat on the Supreme Court. We need people to be engaged uh, when the when the next uh, Fed chairman is is appointed, and that to keep this pattern of from Janet Yellen to to, Ms. to, to, to uh, Chair Powell, people who are willing to talk about. I mean, I love for him to talk, him to talk more about income inequality and what the Fed could do to address income inequality, economic insecurity beyond just monetary policy. But we need people to be there, and so, um, and I think that's another thing too. We don't want to harshly judge people uh, for whether or not they want to protest. That I like my model that I have in my head is the three T's: your time, your talent, and your treasure. And this, and because this is going to be a marathon. It's a continuation of a marathon that's been going on. People will be able to have it's going to be ample time to give your time, whether it's protesting, will be ample time to devote some of your treasure. Uh, and, and there'll be ample time to really provide, offer your talent. And like for me, like my, I've developed a personal mission a number of years ago. It's about empowering people and communities with economic thought and analysis. Uh, and I do that with my teaching, my service, uh, and my research. And uh, but I also you know, apply these three T's. What you, and so people can sort of step back. And I think that's another way to answer your question of what people can do. It's really to assess, okay, what, you know, what, what, uh, can I use my time? Can I use my talent or my treasure or, or some combination of all three? I love that. I love that. Treasure. So much better than saying money. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Also and other things that are not yeah. necessarily money but that are treasures. Right. Right. And then the other the other piece of this too, I think, on what we can do is is, and I shared with shared this with you in one of our earlier previous conversations, and that is, you could think of think of that there's been this drumbeat drumbeat over the years, over the generations, and it ebbs and flows, and the drumbeat has now gotten louder. And use your time, your talent, your treasure to add to that drumbeat. Because uh, we need different types of rhythms, we need different types of drums, we need different, uh, di- you know, different sounds and uh, different, different, just different beats. Because there's, because now there's just so many ways to communicate. Uh, so many, we're so siloed in many ways. So um, that that folks who are in in relationships with people who haven't yet awoken or who just are it's to no fault of their own. They, they've got life struggles themselves. Those are the people. Those those, but they are but they are people who we can can be can be educated, can be brought along. Right? Those are the people who we have to really engage and 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 and, and bring in the fold and and, and do it respectfully. Uh, don't we don't want to be chastising people uh, for 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 where they are. Uh, we want to cherish them and lift them up and and bring them along. Uh, and sometimes you may say, bless your heart <laughs> in the fine Southern tradition. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> little but, seven-year-old, have you seen her, Winta, who is a great protester? I'll have to send, but she's so wonderful. 
Mm. Winter Amour. Her middle name is like love. Mm. She just says these things and I swear it's like spirits coming through her and she says these things. And she said it the other day. She's like, I want everybody, everybody to be friends. Mm-hmm. All of us, the police. Like she's just like, here she is this little person saying, like, let this is, you know, that's what probably all children want. And we, and we all are children at heart that we want yeah. to all get along and we want to, um, you know, work through our differences to find this um, humanity that is, that is needed. That's right. Yeah. The, when I shared some of my early, early high school experiences with my children about my dating, they look at me like I got three eyes, like, really? really and and so like that young lady you're mentioning and and it's this other gen, younger generation they are they're they're so way ahead of us they started so, off so way yeah, exactly exactly yeah, exactly and i think also that's another rationale reason why you're seeing so many of them uh such a diverse uh set of uh, peaceful protesting and that because of that piece and so and you know, one of my favorite songs that I shared with you and you put it on your playlist uh, is that Mandisa, uh, Bleed the Same. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, 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 I'm just been, I mentioned it at the end of a Barron's article, I uh, op-ed I wrote a couple, for a couple of weeks ago, and I'm hoping more people will pick it up because the video is just such a wonderful presentation of our future and our future lives with our children. Where she starts off with the, you know, the parents and the adults in the video have these very stern and angry faces, but through song and dance and movement, you end up getting to a place where the parent, the adults are smiling and people are laughing and the children are happy, uh, and it's all because we believe the same. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican or whether you're black or white, as Mandisa says. Um, and I love the beginning of that. The, of her the video where she, where she takes an excerpt from uh, Kirk Franklin, a minister. He talks about you know when black boys are killed, we need to say something. When white when police officers are killed, we need to say something. And if you don't say something, we're saying something. And and say something with your time, your talent, or your treasure. Oh well, I don't think I can say anything after that. That was just beautiful. Well, Bill, um, I I do want to say one thing about the yoga world really quickly because I, since I have you here. You mentioned about yoga makes you uncomfortable. Do you feel uncomfortable because of the physical challenge or that you're a black male in a really white yoga no. student? Yeah, that doesn't bother you. I know that. No, no. Yeah, no, yeah you're no, like, no, oh no, that doesn't bother me. Yeah, no, I like it. No, no, no. <laughs> Get all these women around me. Okay, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. It's a, it's a, it is a, well, one, I, as I said, ever, after, after Washington, D.C., where I was born, I pretty much have lived in, lived in predominantly white communities. Mm-hmm. And I think I've surprised a lot of people too when I've gone into job interviews or whatever, where they see on my resume, William McKinley Rogers III, went to Dartmouth, went to Harvard, blah, blah, blah. And then they, and they, hear, me, they hear me speak on the phone and, you know, <laughs> and then they meet me like, oh, whoa, okay. Um, but uh, when I, when, what I meant by uncomfortable was more about getting out of my comfort zone. Like mm-hmm. It was like you and Debbie and Kristen, those are probably the three primary, and, and uh, Maria and, uh, and the recently, where it's an hour and 15 minutes or an hour where it's just, yeah, you lose yourself in the movement. And, and, uh, and I think it's also helped me professionally to get back 
it's a recovery from my, you know, from my divorce and get back to a place where, yeah, I'm willing to take risks professionally. And I don't get so caught up with, if I say something or write something or publish something, what are people going to say about it? Or I do a CNBC segment or MSNBC segment, and I you know, used to get off it before yoga and, and a spiritual sort of fellowship, fellowship group that I'm a part of, where I'd get off and I'd be, oh, you know, I, I, I didn't do well. I didn't do well, or I got to do better. And that, yeah, I've been an athlete, competitive athlete for my lifetime, but this was something new, right? something new. Um, it had, you know, it's the flows that we do have helped me I'd say, well, yeah, try something different. Don't just do use the left side, right? You know, we want balance. We want uh, we, we want to, uh, to to be fulfilled. We want to be able to. It's about claiming joy, right? And and so what I so that was why I was meant by that by being yeah by being uncomfortable. It was it was more in that context of you you settled into a bunch of patterns. Right. It was and challenging because it was yeah. not it was new. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. And some of it's and some of those patterns are good, but some of those patterns could be made better. Uh, and then now, and then I love the also the notion that we're always it's always a practice. Yes. It's always about getting deeper into a pose or 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 adding on like adding on more complex, going from simple to complex. It's one of my concepts I use with my coaching my soccer. Is is we always build a practice where we go from simple to complex, and I see that a lot in what we're doing, uh, also. So, uh, yeah, it, and it's interesting because my father has been practicing for a long time, and my sister is an instructor, but they never really. So you're not going to try this. <laughs> so, but you were into places where you're at the right place at the right time. So, and I'm so happy to I'm yeah. so happy to be with you. I'm so happy that you're there and it's been a joy. It's always, you always bring such a smile to everyone. I think you're such a great example as a, as a, a just a human, not black, not male, not, you know, you're just, um, you just want to be the best and you want everybody else to as well. That's kind of what I subscribe to. And, um, you just have a spark of joy always with you. It's, it's, it's just wonderful to see and beautiful to be around. And, I think, you know, we can just close by saying, let's bring more of that, bring more of our, our movement to be curious, to be uncomfortable in the places we need to be, to look at our habits that aren't serving us and um, maybe improve our habits or form new ones. And like you said, the, um, the three T's, uh, bring that in more and more into our lives. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And that, and just, and have that perspective that, uh, as I said, it's a, this is a marathon. And that folks need to understand if we're really going to make systemic change, that this is the behave finding those behaviors and making change, not for just a week, not for just a month, but this is a this is a commitment for you the rest of your life, and pass that on to your children, where they can then make that commitment for the rest of your life, and because um, what that connects for me to connects to for me is this. Uh, from that working on the school board in Williamsburg, Virginia, we had this wonderful, we had this wonderful um, mission. And it was about uh, creating or being lifelong learners, independent thinkers, and responsible citizens. And as long as we are able to do that, right, 
has been my, my former labor secretary with the boss, Alexis Herman, used to say, you know, let's make the promise, the promise of America the practice of America. Boom. There we go. I love it. <laughs> all, of, all of our stuff encapsulated in that one sentence. Well, thank you so much, Bill. I'm sure I'll have lots of great follow-up with all these listeners. And for all the listeners out there, as always, thank you. And I'm pulling for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.